Our reading continues this morning from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 (coughs) through 11, also reading from the Common English Bible Translation. So now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. God has done what was impossible for the law since it was weak because of selfishness. God condemned sin in the body by sending God's own Son to deal with sin in the same body as humans who are controlled by sin. God did this so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now the way we live is based on the Spirit, not based on on selfishness. People whose lives are based on selfishness think about selfish things, but people whose lives are based on the Spirit think about the things that are related to the Spirit. The attitude that comes from selfishness leads to death, but the attitude that comes from the Spirit leads to life and peace. So the attitude that comes from selfishness is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law because it cannot. People who are self-centered are not able to please God. But you aren't self-centered. Instead, you are in the Spirit if, in fact, God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. If Christ is in you, The spirit is your life because of God's righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, reveal your word to us this day that we might have life in your name. Amen. There's a famous scene in the Gospel of Luke. It's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus travels back to Nazareth, his hometown, and enters the synagogue to teach and to pray. He stands to read from the scriptures, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. And being familiar with the words of the prophet, Jesus already had something in mind that he wanted to read. Unrolling the scroll, Jesus found the place where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. The Lord has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The gospel writer said that after Jesus finished reading these words, he rolled the scroll back up and sat down. And everyone just looked at him. And then he said, Today, 
These words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was declaring to his people, a people demoralized by the Roman Empire, a people longing to be made free, that the fulfillment of their hopes had arrived, that the time of redemption was coming about and that God was setting things right again, announcing freedom for the poor and the oppressed, emancipation for those locked up in injustice, liberation for those beaten down and disregarded, refuge for the victims of violence and abuse, a new day for those whose hearts were broken, a future for those who'd been told all their lives that they're nothing. And with these words, Jesus was characterizing for the people the meaning of the gospel and just what the focus of his ministry would be, the restoring of life and peace and wholeness to people and to communities by the grace and mercy of God. This is what God's Spirit is doing, he was telling them. And this is what I'm about. And these are the visible signs of God's presence in our midst today, the tangible evidence of the Spirit of God in the here and now. And the people of Nazareth were amazed by what they heard. One translation says, everyone was raving about Jesus and impressed by the gracious words flowing from his lips. But then someone in the crowd suddenly remembered, and they said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? As if to say, who does he think he is? We know where he came from. We know his backstory. Maybe he's not so extraordinary after all. Receiving their suspicions, Jesus continued to preach, and he reminded the people of just how big God's vision is. And he confronted them about their prejudice and about their willingness to dismiss other people. In fact, Jesus showed in the scriptures how God often chooses the lowly and the weak and the outsider, the very people that have been rejected, the very people that have been cast aside. The people liked Jesus' message when they heard him say that the good news was for them. But when Jesus said that the good news was for other people too, they were offended and they were filled with rage. And the people were so angry at Jesus' words that they rose up and drove him out of town. And they led Jesus to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. Jesus somehow managed to pass through the crowd and be on his way, but let's pause here for a moment. How quickly the people turned against Jesus, and remember, he was one of their own. It makes you wonder just how many other people had suffered the same fate, had been rejected in the same way. Is it a coincidence, do you think, that the site of the cliff was also the town's foundation? Imagine that, an entire town built and held together by fear. In the Greek language of the New Testament, the words throw off a cliff are just one word. And in case you're wondering, it's not a word that is used often. 
In fact, this story from Luke's gospel is the only time that it appears. And even though this particular word is used only once in the New Testament, the word closely resembles a word that Paul uses in today's reading from Romans chapter 8. When Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the word condemnation is eerily similar to the verb that is used in Luke's gospel. Its structure and pronunciation are nearly identical. And the two words are so similar that each manages to tell us something about the other. The people's attempt to throw Jesus off of a cliff is an attempt to pass judgment on him, rendering Jesus guilty of an offense that is worthy of death. It is a kind of rejection that is also in itself a kind of punishment. And the consequences are disastrous, for they cannot be undone. Once you're over the edge of the cliff, there is no going back. It is also thus a form of condemnation. When Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul is not simply referring to the elimination of sin's consequences and the removal of our guilt in the sight of God. He is also referring to the ways in which we human beings are prone to reject and to condemn each other. The condemnation of the people in Nazareth was an act of violence, a way of seeing and speaking to and treating another person as if they're worthless, as if they do not belong, as if their lives are meaningless, as if they are no person at all. We human beings have a way of doing this to each other. We do this to ourselves. We do this to the earth and its creatures. When Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, he's not just concerned to express the outcomes of God's love toward the world, but also the character of the people of God in response. For God's love and the fullness of its demonstration in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus cannot be nullified. That is what Paul means when he says, now. For there is now no condemnation. Because of Jesus, another way is possible. After all, Christ himself, God's own son, suffered the verdict of condemnation by way of his death on the cross. But Christ was innocent of the charges that were brought against him, revealing just how wrong we human beings can be in our condemnations of one another, even when we are convinced that we are justified in doing so. And the Holy Spirit, by raising Jesus from death to life again, overcame the condemnation of death that Jesus had received. By raising Jesus from the dead, God condemned sin in the same human body in which sin had condemned Christ to die, undoing what we ourselves could not do. As Paul declares in Romans 4.25, Christ was raised by the Holy Spirit, to meet the requirements of righteousness for us. Thus, in the resurrection of Jesus, whose human body is like our own, the Holy Spirit has released us from the condemnation of sin and from death. 
God cannot accept any form of condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus because the life of God in Christ has been applied to us. Not only his righteousness, but also his resurrection. Not only his love, but also his victory. How? Because the Holy Spirit is the very life of God living also in us. And the love of God has liberated us from the power of sin and its death dealing. And this is the same love that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, poured into our hearts in order for us to be able to accomplish what we could not accomplish beforehand on our own. Paul's language here is very important for us. When Paul says in Romans 5, 8 that God's love has been poured into our hearts, it's not just a little bit. The word Paul uses denotes both an experience of fullness and steadfast commitment. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is fully committed to us. And this is demonstrated in us by the love of God that has been poured out in abundance. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 to talk about the impact and the effects of the Spirit's presence in our lives. And in today's translation from the Common English Bible, Paul distinguishes between a life that is guided by the Spirit, made possible through Christ, and a life that is guided by selfishness, which Paul insists is really not an option for us. Because selfishness is no way to live, since it does not lead to life for us and for others. Many other English translations render Paul's distinction in Romans 8 as a distinction between the spirit and the flesh. The word flesh is a more literal translation. The Common English Bible's translation of the word flesh as selfishness is valuable because it helps us to more fully conceptualize what exactly Paul intends by using the word flesh. Paul isn't suggesting that a life guided by the Spirit is anything other than a physical existence, as if our bodies do not matter, as if the substance of our faith was immaterial, as if God's love in us was not tangible, as if the Holy Spirit was not a real person, a real presence in our lives. When Paul uses the word flesh, he's referring to a way of being that is guided by a muddled way of thinking, a confused logic, a way of living that is unconcerned with neighborliness and the common good, a way of living that is at odds with the righteousness of God that the love of Christ has shown to us and makes possible in us by the real and living presence of the Holy Spirit. The flesh is all that we had to live by before we had been redeemed. Selfishness is all that we understood before the Holy Spirit took hold of us, thanks be to God. The Common English Bible's translation of the word flesh as selfishness helps to clarify what Paul is expressing, but this translation also has its disadvantages. And the primary disadvantage is that the word selfishness in our minds often implies that we are each consumed by our own individual concerns. 
And that sort of translation creates a bit of a problem for us because it suggests that sin is nothing more than the practice of an individual. But we know differently. For just like the people in Luke's gospel, we know the many ways that sin continues to manifest itself, not just in individuals, but also in families and in towns and in societies like our own. Ideas and decisions and fears and ways of seeing and treating people can grow and spread to infect and to destroy an entire community. And sometimes it's far too easy for us to just ignore what is going on around us, to put our heads down and keep quiet and carry on, refusing to speak out and to speak up, even when we see and experience what we know is wrong. That's how apathy settles in, to harden our hearts when we see someone, another human being, being dismissed and rejected and condemned. And as a people, we decide that there's nothing that we can do to ease the pain and make a difference. So instead, we close our ears and turn away, believing that if we do nothing, we do well and will at least have avoided any personal responsibility for what is happening all around us. That is the sin of complacency. That is the sin of indifference. Whenever we decide that it's better for us to do nothing than to do what is right for our neighbor. We also condemn ourselves Paul says in Romans chapter 2, when we choose to pass judgment on someone else, whenever we dismiss and reject and condemn one another, whenever we do not see and speak to and treat one another with the love of Jesus, we have surely limited the possibilities of love and its transformation in our own lives because it is impossible to reap the benefits of salvation if we are unwilling to secure its benefits for everybody. We cannot pursue what is good for ourselves while also ignoring the well-being of others. We cannot experience the fullness of the good news that God promises while also drawing lines in the sand. There is no freedom for a few at the expense of freedom for all. Redemption is only complete if and when it is made available to everyone. So remember what Paul said, the attitude that comes from selfishness leads to death, but the attitude that comes from the Spirit leads to life and peace. And you aren't self-centered if the Spirit of God lives in you. Because if the Spirit lives in you, and if the Spirit lives in me, and if the Spirit lives in all who trust that God gives life through Jesus Christ our Lord without distinction, and if nothing can separate us from the love that is stronger than death, a love that lives inside of each of us, then we too can be sure that there has got to be another way. And we can work together as one people one church to make visible the signs of the Spirit's presence in our world today. Lives committed to demonstrating the good news that God has shown to us. Lives dedicated to ensuring the common good for everyone. 
lives inspired by the life of Jesus to inspire others to kindness, peace, and generosity. Lives that spread joy and sow beauty to renew the earth and all its people. Lives marked by praise and prayer and faithfulness in the face of hardship and difficulty. Lives that resist settling for the status quo because it's all we've ever known. Lives that pursue the very fullness of the grace and mercy of God. It is through the faithfulness of Jesus, combined with our faith in Jesus, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is alive, we too have life. And because the Spirit lives in us, we too are free to live the life that God desires. A life that is guided by the same Spirit that was in Jesus. A life that is characterized by the same love that has been shown to us. The love of God and the power that has the power over sin and death lives in all of God's children. And love is alive in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue and to enact the life and example of Jesus, as he said to the people in his hometown, to preach good news to the powerless, to liberate the oppressed, and to set prisoners free because the time of God's blessing has come. But we cannot foresee the future we do believe and trust today that the love of God will never leave us empty-handed. And come what may, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God in Christ has given us all that we need to be the people that God is calling us to become. For this day, in this hour, here and now, thanks be to God. Amen.